Hey everybody, welcome to Building Public Podcast. I'm your host, KP, and today I am super, super thrilled to be joined by a special guest, Rehan Chowdhury, joining from New York. Hey, Rehan, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me. Of course, thank you. So, I mean, I, we were just talking about the one big commonality we both share, which we missed last time when we connected, which is we both went to Vanderbilt. You know, I'm a Vandy grad too. I went to School of Engineering, grad school, and Rehan just shared with me that he was uh, in Owen School of Management. Rayan, let's kick it off there. Then we'll come back to chapter, come back to your, you know, multiple, you know, career pivots and, and want to like understand the lessons that brought it, brought us to the start that you're working on called chapter. But let's go to your Vanderbilt time. This is 2007. Give me a snapshot of what that Rayhan was doing in Nashville. What were the hopes and dreams of that Rayhan? Yeah, so I was the a as I was a, as much of an atypical candidate for graduate school as you're going to get. I, I did terribly in school for the vast majority of my life. I, I think I graduated college with a 2.2 GPA, and it wasn't for a lack of effort. I just I it just. I couldn't make it click. So after college, I ended up getting a couple years of work experience. I was working for the Department of Homeland Security in the years after 9-11 and realized that I needed some sort of accelerant, uh, not an accelerant in my career, but an accelerant in, in giving me a better sense of what I was capable of and what I could accomplish. And I applied to 10 business schools, 10 top tier business schools, and I got rejected by eight of them. I got into American University in DC and I got into, I got waitlisted at Vanderbilt University. And the day I got the waitlist letter, the bottom of the letter actually said, do not contact us. We <laughs> will figure this out and come back to you. And I booked a flight. I went straight to Nashville and uh, I walked into one of the enrollment director's offices and I go, look, I just, I got this letter yesterday and I need to talk to you. So I don't know why he let me talk, but he sat me down and I gave him the whole story. I was like, look, like, I know a lot of people say they want to come here. I need to come here. I need this in my life. I need a broader understanding of what the world looks like. I need a better understanding of what business looks like and what different ways in which people are using their strengths to accomplish big tasks. I need to be able to dream bigger. And at the end of it, I was like, look, like I can't afford it, but I, I will write a deposit check right now if you would take it and accept me. And he's like, I can't do that, but let me, let me see what we can do. So I went back to my hotel, flew back home the next day, and I got an acceptance letter within the week. I love that. And then I, yeah. And then I was in Nashville, Tennessee, trying to figure out how I was going to really do the things that I wanted to do there and learn what I wanted to learn there. What was your, so you talked about a little bit about being, uh, finding a way to accelerate through your life sort of actualization or sort of, you know, higher levels of, you know, achievements. What were some of like the big wide-eyed dreams you had at the time, right? Like you must have had something like, was it about starting a company or was it about, you know, the ranks, going up the ranks in a corporate career? What were you dreaming about in grad school? Yeah, it's funny. So so right before I graduated, I think like a week before graduation, I had, I had an offer in hand for Caesars Entertainment, the casino company. I was going to go work for them in a leadership development program. And I was talking to my mentor, who's a, a professor. His name was Bart Victor. And I was telling him how excited I was to go work at the casino industry. And he's like, yeah, that's great. You're going to play around there for a couple of years and then you'll do something else. And I was like, that's not very encouraging. You're supposed to, you're supposed to coach me along here. And he said, uh, he's like, look, you're an entrepreneur. 
if I've ever seen one and you haven't figured it out yet, but you'll get there and you'll call me when you do. And so to answer your question, at the time, I had a very clear sense that I had started out in an entry-level position, but I was capable of more in a leadership position. But I'd assumed that the only way to really accomplish that was working up within an organization. So I needed something that would provide an accelerant for me to be able to jump levels. And I think part of that like limited focus was the result of being a, a first-generation American child of two Pakistani immigrant physicians who are as conservative as you could possibly get. And in, that, in our culture, the conversation at home is more about all the uh, all the accomplishments that the other parents' kids had cousins versus, there, yeah. versus yours. Yeah, yeah. And extended you, family. You, yeah, and if you didn't have something that was a clear indicator of success on your resume, it didn't it wasn't valued. So entrepreneurship was was considered something that you did if you had no direction and had nowhere else to go. And typically right. entrepreneurship in our culture was, and I'm using this as a real example because I've got several family members who did this, but like you'd go franchise a subway. Yeah. Somebody else in the family would pay for it. Yeah. And that was your seed investor. Or, or seven eleven. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah that's exactly yeah. right. So at the time I went in purely thinking. I've got to figure out what my strengths are, what industry focus that was going to channel me to and what I wanted to learn. And I knew that I wanted a balance of strategy work and being in front of customers and actually working with customers at a very, very, very personal level. And one of the few industries that offered that was the casino industry. Mm. These businesses are multi-billion dollar businesses. At the time, Caesars was a Fortune 500 company. And they provided me that. I could be up in a boardroom talking about the 10-year future development or the, the, the growth plan for the company. And an hour later, I could be down on the casino floor holding the hand of some 80-year-old woman who was trying to find the buffet. And I liked that dynamic because it never allowed you to forget who you were serving or who you were in service of. That's where I was headed in grad school. Being an entrepreneur was not even in the plan. Right. It's amazing. And I mean, there's so many things I can unpack from that one, including how like when you think of, you know, entertainment industry, especially casinos and so on, like the first picture that comes to mind is sort of like this gala, the celebration, this party. But at the core of it is this service, you know, kind of like any other business, right? There's this exchange of service. And I, I'm so glad you brought up the 80 year old looking for a buffet example, because, you know, it speaks to what you actually noticed while you were there, you know, what do you think? So give us a quick high level on like how deep you were in the sort of entertainment, like casino industry in a way and how long you were there for and like one or two top lessons you took away from that experience. Yeah, so I, I started out and uh, I, I interned for Caesars Entertainment in the middle of grad school. So I was in 2006 and I went full time in 2007. I was part of a leadership development program that was meant to teach you every aspect of the business before you found your fit and you kind of doubled down in one area. It seemed like my area was analytical marketing and casino marketing, specifically getting people to gamble more, which I didn't necessarily approve of, but I thought it was an interesting marketing challenge. And then six months later, the 2008 recession hit. And the entire world changed. In recessions, gambling becomes, uh, and gambling business just disappeared entirely. Right. And all of a sudden, you had these hotels where, at least, at least in, in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where I was, I don't know, 70, 80% of their revenue more was directly tied to people putting money in slot machines. And that all but disappeared. And you had an entire local community that was struggling in the wake of the recession. So I saw an opportunity. It was either sit still and cross my fingers 
close my eyes and hope that the world would recover and I'd have a job again. Or I was like, I could just start taking some big swing risks and try to fix some things while also making a name for myself. So I proposed a lifestyle entertainment division for the company, which hadn't existed at the time. So lifestyle entertainment today is anything from food and wine festivals to art events to fashion shows, anything in that category. Right. And I basically told them, I was like, look, nobody wants to come here to gamble, but people would come here to see Bobby Flay and and Rachel Ray Cook on stage. And for some reason, they let me play around because I don't think they had a whole lot of other options. And within a couple of years, I developed the leading lifestyle entertainment division for the casino industry that ended up getting adopted by by largely the the rest of the industry. So I was in Atlantic City for, I don't know, four years. And I caught the attention of Deutsche Bank. And at that time, bottom of the recession, this is now 2010, Deutsche Bank had had, a acquired a casino that they were an investor in halfway through construction out of foreclosure, which was called the Cosmopolitan. Mm. Um, at the time, nobody really knew what was going on with the property. So they had hired a team to finish construction and launch it as a new multi-billion dollar casino. And they hired me to run entertainment for the property and actually open the casino. So I right. moved to Las Vegas and I took on a whole new challenge, which was trying to introduce a multi-billion dollar luxury casino resort in a town that was devastated by the recession and an economy that was just starting to turn around. So my contribution to the city at that time was creating a an entertainment program that was just hyper-focused on the local community. I brought the, the basics of it where I brought touring bands through Vegas that were not coming through Vegas at any single point. Because at that time, the only people that played on stage were Celine Dion and Elton John and similar acts. <laughs> and Either big superstars or nobody. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that was it. You didn't have anyone else. Right. So like for the local community, you're not going to see Celine Dion 20 times a year. Yeah, right. Um, you need to have those venues where you can spend $10 to see an unknown band and, and catch somebody before they break. Right. So we ended up building an incubator inside our resort where I had all levels of musical talent coming through from complete nobodies to the biggest names. And it turned out that our nobody program was what defined us. So we mm. had bands that nobody Nobody had heard of before when they came through, but ended up becoming big names. So we booked uh, the first shows for Foster the People, Mumford and Sons, Adele, The Black Keys. Wow. Um, we did shows with Jay Z, Coldplay, Kanye, Beyonce, John Mayer. We did the Florence and the Machines first Vegas shows. Now, obviously, the bigger names were, were known, but like nobody knew who Adele was when we brought her through. And what it did was it gave the local community a sense of purpose. Yeah. Um, optimism. Yeah, not purpose in like their life by any means, because we're talking live entertainment, but I, I mean a sense of purpose and that their city started to have definition that they could then celebrate externally. Right? right. Like this is the place where we saw Foster the people on stage an hour before pumped up kicks broke number one on the charts. Yeah. And that's where, so by 2012, the casino had been over for two years. We changed the face of live entertainment for the city and I got really bored. Mm-hmm. Um, I just didn't want to, I get into these modes, I think, where all of a sudden I wake up one day and I can see the next 10 years of my life. And if it looks exactly the same as the day before, that's when I'm, I'm like, I got to get the F out of here. Yeah. So I resigned within that week and sat in my kitchen and started coming up with ideas for businesses. And I came up with this idea for a music festival called Life is Beautiful that would help bring awareness to and support for young people who are dealing with increasing rates of depression, anxiety, and suicide. And today, Life is Beautiful is one of the top five global music festivals. 
Yeah. Well, you, you just dropped a bomb on that one because that's, that's such a big shift going from an idea on a napkin at, at your kitchen table to building an elite, you know, a festival like that. Give us a breakdown of some of the uh, inflection points in that journey. You know, personally, that you're so proud of, like that meant a lot for you going from especially I'm curious about the zero to the first win moments. And then, of course, a couple others, too. Yeah, I think what I learned out of those years is um, what it feels like to really take risks, to really put yourself out there. And it's not about the, necessarily the amount of money. The, the budgets were big at that time. But it's really the idea that, like, you're willing to get in front of a, a TV camera or somebody writing an article or on a podcast and say with confidence that I'm going to change the face of local music in Las Vegas, mm. that we are going to do this. And have having no idea how you were going to do it. Right? Making like, a bold, it, it, plain, bold promise, right? Yeah. So it's the idea of one, being able to do that and then rallying a team around this unknown idea and actually getting people towards that goal. So that is zero to one entrepreneurship at its yeah. very core. But I was doing it for corporate companies. So in some ways we had some stability, but in other ways, I was so young in my career. If I'd crashed and burned in that gig, I would have done so on a major, major scale. So I think the first thing was, the first big learning was just knowing what bet you want to make and just leaning in. Not focused on risk mitigation, but just go and just going in. Right. And knowing that it doesn't matter how you end up on the other side, the journey, you're gonna be better for it. And the end result looked like success. But I had a lot of failures during that time. And I learned a ton about what it feels like to just consistently get your ass kicked internally while you're being celebrated externally. Right. So I think that was, that was the second thing was understanding how to balance ego against like the brutal realities of having to perform and then having to be held accountable. What does that look like? I'm curious, like in terms of just emotionally processing the internal realities, you know, give me a sense of like an example where outside there was some interview or some big news article about the progress, but internally you just know something's broken or something is fixing or whatever. Like, is there a, can you add a little flavor to this? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, at the time, so this is when we were at, when we were at the, the Cosmopolitan, I would spend my, I don't know, I spent half my day giving speeches and doing interviews and I, I do television interviews. I get the cover of, of newspapers. I, I got in, interviewed in Billboard and Rolling Stone. And these were, these were publications that I grew up with. So, like, right. I was living the life that the 14 year old version of myself would have only dreamed to have been able to live. And then I'd get into the office and you had to deal with the realities of launching a major new business at the bottom of the recession, which is performance for the business overall is not what people had projected it to be. Cost-cutting measures were going into place. We had to try to figure out how to do the same results or more with less. Mm. And when businesses are struggling, bad if you don't have a good culture. Yeah. When businesses are struggling, your first indicator that you have a weak culture is that people start blaming each other. Yeah. And people start attacking each other. Right. And all of a sudden, it became really hard, even with evidence of the impact of what we were doing, it became really hard to convince people to take risks. Mm. And I think that was probably the first time that I really got the conviction around the idea that I should be an entrepreneur. Because I, I started to sit in meetings and I started to realize that I couldn't deal with the idea that my 
ability to bring my ideas to life are going to be limited by somebody else's risk tolerance. Yeah. And not, not somebody else's department's risk tolerance and not somebody, not another company's risk tolerance. But at the end of the day, like managers, department heads, leaders, they're people. Yeah. And if they're personally feeling insecure, if let's say like the economy's falling apart, the business is struggling and they just sent their kid to private school and they're dealing with a big tuition number that they got to pay, they're going to operate day to day in that company with the level of insecurity that their leadership isn't expecting them to. Right. But they are. And in my case, if I'm trapped under that person, you're done. You're yeah. just done. So, so and it's not to say you can't make a career out of that. People, plenty of people make careers out of it. I just know myself. I was going to implode. So, so um, I think that was the other thing that I learned was that in a lot of cases, bad things aren't forced on you. You learn to accept them and live with them mm. because you can, you can get out of a lot of circumstances. And that's not the case for everything, right? right. Like a lot of people are, are trapped in situations in their life that they were born into and are stuck into. But at least when you're dealing with your career, it doesn't matter how many years you put into it. And then... If it's wrong, it's wrong. For me, this is where the ego thing came into play. Because in Las Vegas, Nevada in 2012, I was one of the most sought after people to be associated with because I was leading the top entertainment program in the country. Right. And the day before I resigned, my phone was blowing up constantly. The day after I resigned, silence. Mm. nobody wanted to touch me interesting i was literally all those people that used to go to shows with me i called them up and said they wanted to hang out nobody wanted to hang out i wasn't getting any of the interviews nobody wanted to talk to me nobody wanted to hear my perspective on things it was the first time that i started to get the understanding of how fickle awareness is yeah right like like hype-based awareness right and i think what i learned and what i what i embraced then was the understanding that if you're willing to take the risk and cut bait and make a tr- make a shift, you got to deal with being alone for a minute. Yeah, and a lot of people can't do that. Yeah, a I think lot of people can't do that. It's more than a minute, though, right? For a long, long time until you have the winds favoring you again, and then you're the hot shot again because of some. I mean, like- a minute, is, a minute is two years. I mean, right. I've noticed this that consistently, consistently, no matter what my idea is, it takes me two full years to get to the point where I start feeling the benefits of putting yourself out there, right? You start getting people to critique and give opinions and talk about it. So it makes me want to ask, like, you know, it seems like this, these are uncomfortable years and positions that you're putting yourself, you've been putting yourself into. What gives you comfort in this discomfort? I don't know. I think, I think like, we've all got a warrior story in us. We all do. And you, you choose to either embrace that or not. And I, when I was 20 three years old. I just graduated from, from college and had a tough time in school. I, I, I had learning issues. I struggled in everything that I did, but I somehow managed to graduate and I ended up getting this, this job working for the government. I was working for the Department of Homeland Security and I was riding a high. Like I was riding the, the highest high that I possibly could. I, I had a really good starting salary for that era. I, I wore a suit to work every day. I felt like <laughs> I had a new car. I felt really good. And then one day I was at the gym and I was working out and I had a massive heart attack mm. and collapsed and got rushed to the hospital to have emergency double bypass surgery. And all of a sudden my life was just sidelined and I had to relearn a lot of things about my life in light of that. And I think, I don't know if I got comfortable in those years being in like this questionable state where I didn't know if things were going to start getting better or go south really quickly. But I started finding this like deep seated drive and motivation start being born out of that. Mm. 
How did I feel it? So I, I think for me, it's not, I sometimes joke that I, that it's an addiction to entrepreneurship. And I don't think it's an addiction. I think it's that I found what inspires me and what keeps me moving and what makes me, what pushes me to be the best version of myself. And it's the risk of losing. Mm. It really is. And not the risk of losing like a competition. It's the risk of losing everything. Mm. Because that's the fear is that even, even I'm 42 years old and even at this age, I feel like I'm out on a limb that if this doesn't work, I'm going to ruin my reputation and people are going to look at me seriously. Mm. And that's not real. That's like that's right. something that we make up in our heads. Right. But it's just a reality that you, that you carry. So, I don't know if I answered your question. But no, I, I think you did. I mean, it seems to me like the comfort is in tying sort of the purpose of what you do into that warrior story and saying, like, I got to do this. You know, like, I don't know what I would do if I don't do this. Right. I was talking to somebody the other day and like I got a nice compliment from them and I didn't even think of it as a compliment because for me, that's just the reality. They were saying, KP, like I observe, like you say something on Monday and then you just do it on Wednesday. You don't wait for it. I'm like, I'm actually I knew the reason why, because personally, I don't believe I'm not confident enough that I will be able to remember this idea or insight that I've had in my head three months later. So I, I'd much rather just to take action on it and manifest it in the world in an imperfect way. So at least it exists and put around as a opposed to me thinking, you know what, I'll get to this in like Q1 2023. I can't, I just can't. I'm very impatient about those things. So I'm like, I mean, I thought that was a very good compliment. She said, you have such a good bias to action. I'm like, but that's, isn't that how everybody is? And like, they're no, no, it's not. And, no. but I hang out in entrepreneurship communities all day. And like, so like you, Rayhan, so this is like our normal, like the reason why we are all sort of, we can read each other is because we're broken in this sense that we can't like sit on something for too long. Like your napkin story is so funny to me because it's like, you just, you just couldn't you know, you were at the kitchen table and you're like, you got to take action and you went and did it. You know, how does all of that lead someone like you to starting chapter? And first of all, what is chapter? I, mean, I think we got to get to some technicals. Like what is chapter? It's an app. It's a place for you to grieve after the loss of a loved one. So, you know, again, that's just like my TLDR on it. But I want to understand your perspective on what do you think really brought you to chapter? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think what, so. something you just said is, I think really important to not only repeat, but like for people to really embrace, it's this idea that taking an idea from nothing to something in a very short period of time is not just a good trait. It's a superpower in the greatest sense, because you have to remember that the vast majority of people that do have lived and will live on this planet can't get past taking an idea in their head to saying it. Yeah. Their insecurity actually stops them from introducing something new out there. You can vocalize it. Yeah. And they can't even vocalize it. It's out of fear of, of ridicule or condemnation or, or whatever it may be. They're just, that's the break, right? So like, if you think that that's the floor. <laughs> right. And what we do is it's a superpower. Yeah. I think that most founders don't get enough credit for that. Uh, we don't give ourselves enough credit yeah. for it because we get wrapped up in fundraising and we get wrapped up in plans, budgets, and all this stuff. And the only thing that's valued in our category, in our world, is creation. Yeah. That is it. So the only, like, the biggest advice that I would give to entrepreneurs is when you feel like you're stuck, just create. Just do it. Right. Like, even if it's the smallest version, if you needed a million dollars to raise to get your product off the ground and you raised 20 grand, just build, go. The 20 grand <laughs> version, right? Just, just bring go, it out. Man. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. Uh -huh. I yeah. I mean, I see that even like, I know we're kind of going on a tangent here, but like, I see that even in like media, right? Even in creation, like, you know, I talk about building in public all the time and eight years I spent on Twitter as a consumer, 
Rehan. And I was consuming all these things from everybody, all corners of the world. It's like parts of Twitter, parts of in general Twitter. And I always felt that I didn't have anything valuable to add while I was not an expert yet. And so all these limiting beliefs limited me to not create on a consistent daily basis and share my thoughts, share my ideas. So until 2018, I felt like I was like this, just like listening. And then I was like, and I realized this, the hand that I'm showing, you now for the folks who are watching this on video, is ridiculous. But what I'm showing is that this is a self-imposed limiting belief. Nobody is stopping you from expressing yourself. You have to pay the price of not becoming a hot shot immediately. So instant results. If you can let go of your attachment towards instant results and followers and counts, oh my God, you are on a whole different planet. I feel <laughs> literally. And since 2018, I just looked at the other day and from 2011, when I moved to the US to 2018, I made 400 tweets. From 2018 to 2022, I made 20,800 tweets. No shit, I have 35,000 followers. It's like for every tweet, I'm getting a follower. So in my, the, when I do the math in my head, I make like 30, 40 tweets a week. And people ask, like, how do you create, come up with tweets? I don't come up with, you guys are also thinking the things that I'm thinking, except I'm vocalizing them. And maybe I've learned, because I've done it 20,000 times, I've learned a way to phrase it so that it's a succinct statement as opposed to like a half-baked thing. But even that I disagree. I think some of the times I actually do half big shit. So my wife jokes that I tweet like I text her. That's a great compliment because that's how it should feel like. I want to feel for my audience to understand that I'm not an expert in my domain. I'm just a curious, you know, practitioner of whatever I'm practicing. And I'm sharing yeah, I mean, along the way so that you catch the wake of my trail. That's it. Yeah, I mean, look, I am one of your Twitter followers. <laughs> and I read your tweets. You do. So, so I apologize in advance for so all, all the... No, there's nothing to apologize over. I, I think the important thing is this. Your succinct tweets, if used correctly, are brilliant thought starters. Others. For whatever happens next. And that's ultimately the best, in my opinion, the best use of Twitter it, as a consumer is to actually look for the content that inspires you to think of the next thing. Yeah. It's not, Twitter is not like reading a book right. where, where you're going to read the thread and you're meant to walk away and say like, okay, I've learned what I can learn about that subject. It is inspiration to be able to do the next thing. And if you never do the next thing, then you're just burning time. But I, I, I think that like, look, I think that's what at least what I use your account for. <laughs> um, but the, I think the original question you'd ask was so like, no, my, my, I how... think the, the, the original prompt was like taking action on an idea, not letting anything get in the way, including your own limiting beliefs, right? That could be Twitter, that could be podcasting, that could be building an app, that could be writing a book, could be anything, right? If you want to start your career in entertainment, right? Like, just do it. I mean, I wish somebody told me this 20 years ago, Rehan, right? I grew up in India, right? And I always felt that, especially in the circles that I grew up in, like, I felt that I was not special and I was not precious or, I mean, not precious, but like, I was not a gifted personality or kid. And, you know, and I try my best to be a good dad now and tell my kid that just being born as human is a freaking triple miracle already. Like you, I've seen, you know, I've watched the birth of my son and all those steps, I'm sure you know this too. Mind blowing. Anywhere anything could have gone wrong and we would be not talking about this right now. You know, so the appreciation and gratitude that I have for him just like breathing and playing and like being like, like an idiot that he is and like tumbling and stuff. You killed it, dude. You beat like so many odds to be who you are. And now you're coming to tell me that you can't play the violin the fourth time 
time and like that's not sounding good, try seventh time, try 18th time. Don't give up because you're special. I don't care what you think you are. This is what I wish somebody told me when I was four, five, six, and I waited 25, 26 years to finally accept the truth about myself that I am special. I just have to find out the talents that I've I have a slight edge on and use those in purpose of serving others. That's it. That's the whole life. Yeah, no, I mean, it's... Did that resonate? Like, do you think, I don't know if my sort of experience of growing up in, you know, in India, like, I don't know how much of that translates, but I always felt that way, you know? Yeah, look, it's showing up is, I don't know, 90% of it. Yeah. The rest of, the rest of it's luck. Arguably, you could say, like, showing up is 10% of it, the rest of it's luck. But um, I think the reality is, like, I, I share, I've shared this with some, some friends of mine who get down on themselves because they're like, oh, I just heard XYZ got, I don't know, some billionaire, some like really renowned entrepreneur to invest in their company via cold email. I don't know why that's not happened to me. My response is typically like, the reason why it didn't happen to you is because you didn't send the cold email. Yeah. Right? It's not like you sent it. Like, that, and it's not, and he didn't get it or she didn't get it because she sent out that one cold email to that one person. She got it because she said probably sent 20,000 cold emails out right. over the last five years right. and one of them got responded to. Right. And that's the thing that people just do not give enough credit to right. the idea that it's not trying once and hoping for the result. And if you don't get it, you failed. It's like repeated attempts until right. it finally works. Right. And It's like your earlier part about showing up in Nashville with your waitlist letter. I feel like... That itself is such a great example of being an entrepreneur. You know, literally, that's literally what it is. I remember, I think I shared earlier before we started the pod that, you know, I had a tough time paying for my applications to even like apply to these universities in America because, you know, each application was very expensive computer translate that in rupees like Indian currency but I remember that summer writing like 400 plus emails to every department that I applied to like literally showing them some proof of work that I've done in the past that applies to what their research is about and saying is there any way I could be a TA or RA or anything I'm willing to I'd love because you should take a bet on me right 399 of them said no or maybe and one of them said yes which is Vanderbilt and that's Give me yeah. a scholarship, change my life. Here I am literally 11 years later. So it just takes one yes. And it takes like, I think that's wrapping. I mean, having a healthy association with rejection is another huge superpower, I think. Yeah, I mean, rejection is just part of the journey as long as you're learning from it. Right. right? So like, I typically say this to people who ask me about uh, for advice on how to pitch their business, whether it's the customers or investors or anyone. And my answer is always the same. It's you got to start pitching today and every chance you get, you got to pitch. And like, well, what does that mean? I was like, I'm like, look, like you're going to be at Starbucks later today. Start a conversation with the person in front of you or behind you and work in the, what do you do? And when then they ask you what you do, give them a pitch. And the idea is by the time you give the pitch that's going to work, you're going to have done 200 of them, but each one is meant to be different. Right, Your next one is supposed to be a better version of your last one because you're learning. And the people who I see that struggle are either ones that do one pitch and when it doesn't work out, they walk away or they do the same pitch over and over again, expecting yeah. a different result. Yeah. And that's the definition of insanity. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right. In our, in our space, it's, you got it. It's iterating. You just Iteration. gotta keep. Yeah. And that doesn't, that's not limited to product development. It's like your story is a product. You gotta, you gotta continue to hone that as many times as you can. It's an interesting journey. Bring us a chapter. <laughs> yeah. Bring us a chapter. Let that, let that be the last chapter of our episode. Yeah. So, um, 
beginning of 2020, I was living anything but the Vegas entertainment life. I, I was in New York City, married. I had a one-year-old son and a, a daughter who was on the way. My wife, for work, my wife's a news anchor. She was creating 60-second video tributes for the first COVID victims in New York. And this was at the very, very beginning of the pandemic. And New York was one of the first cities to go under full quarantine. So we were stuck in our apartment working together. And I, I had a front row seat to the entire journey. And the, the, the massive impact that these short videos had on these grieving communities was something I, I could have never expected. But then the next thing was was how attached I got to the idea of trying to dissect that and figure out where the problem lay. And what I realized was memorialization is just fundamentally broken and it's broken to the point where grieving communities are operating at a deficit as they continue to go through their lives because they're expected to to, for, to move on, mm. which is not a behavior we're supposed to do. And the second is future generations are going to struggle because they're going to grow up on a destabilized foundation because we're not knowledge transferring the way we used to. Mm. But when 99.9% .9 of people who walk life on this earth, stories will never be told how on earth are we supposed to learn how to live our lives? So the idea was, could we get people to, as part of the grieving process, rebuild the life story of their loved one through their own memories, do so as a community, retain that community moving forward, and allow those memories and that history to be a point of empowerment that they can continue to draw inspiration from as they go through their life. So that that person's ripple effect, the person who passed, the ripple effect of their existence would never stop rippling. And then the idea is if you're able to do this in mass, if you're doing, if you're doing this at a global scale and you effectively democratize access to memorialization, imagine 100 years from now when you've got billions of stories of people who lived all kinds of lives, but now you can actually look them up and you can learn from them and you can get guidance from them and in a way that um, can be truly additive to your existence. So all of a sudden, I found myself right back at in grad school at Caesars Entertainment at the Cosmopolitan in the early years of life. It's beautiful. I found myself with a problem, but in this case, um, one of the more meaningful ones I'd, I'd ever witnessed in my life. Right. And an opportunity to really change people's lives. And so I went all in. I, I told my wife, I was like, hey, look, if I get your permission, I want to retire from <laughs> live entertainment and festivals and dive into this. And she was like, I'd much rather you be home doing this than running around the country at a music festival. Right. Like, if this is something that you're going to do for the next decade, then go mm -hmm. do it. And I said, I think it is. So mm -hmm. here we are. That's amazing. So what? where are we in the journey? Like, I know you had a product hunt launch recently congratulations you were you know number one on the day which is you know it's a big deal for folks who doesn't know product hunts like a platform where people can discover new products and tools where are you on the journey and what's coming next for chapter so we launched chapter which is a mobile app dedicated to fixing the way the world remembers people who've died uh, we launched in beta about six months ago. We spent four months in closed beta working with real users. And then we launched publicly on the App Store and Google Play, but limited to friends and family. And then we launched on Product Hunt because that was our chance to get in front of real product people, real developers, real founders, and get critiqued. Because you have a tendency to drink your own Kool-Aid when you've been working on something long enough, you fall in love with your own product. And what we got was a tremendous amount of feedback and insight and validation for a lot of our ideas. But we got a ton of support and we built a 
an awareness level within that community that's going to be incredibly valuable moving forward as we continue to try to hone the product and make it more impactful. In addition to all that, the, the cherry on top or the sprinkles maybe on top was this number one thing because there there hadn't been a mental health platform or a memorialization platform or a death tech platform that had ever done that before. And I, I don't know if that's a, a function of, of our product being good or more so it, it being a topic that everybody is going to have to deal with. But either way, I'm grateful for the support that we got from people like you who literally like took time out of their lives to show us the ropes because um, I've got a ton of experience in my life, but I'm a first time tech founder. This is a, this is a new world for me. And the only reason why I'm able to make the pivot the way I, I have is because um, people are willing to, to teach me. Yeah. There's a lot of, you know, give first mentality. You know, if you look in the right corners, on the internet generally, but also I think just within our circles, which I feel like I've been in your shoes a couple of years ago. So it's just that, you know, we're all lucky that there are, there's enough good in the world to go around. So no, that was great. I will include the link to the app, the app store, but on both the Play stores, I mean, both the app stores uh, in the show notes. This is fun. This is amazing. Thanks for catching up with me and chatting on live and talking about your, you know, decades of experience, different chapters of your life and bringing us to chapter at the end. Thank you for the opportunity. This was great. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. You have a great one, okay? Thanks. You too. Yeah. Bye, Rehan.